So what exactly are we doing now, Grandma? We are getting all the little cardamom seeds out of the shells. Sometimes, if they're a little bit green, um, they are a little bit hard to shell. But we always just sat in a comfortable chair with two bowls, one for the seeds and one for the discarded shells, and worked away on it. This would take forever. <laughs> yes. It, it does. <laughs> Betty Ann Duncan and her granddaughter Emma are sitting in their kitchen, doing something Swedish Canadians have been doing for hundreds of years. Shelling cardamom pods by hand. They'll use the seeds from those pods to make a sweet coffee bread, a favorite recipe for their family, particularly around Christmas. The whole process clearly takes quite a bit of work. Now, both Betty Ann and Emma live in Ontario today, but their family only arrived in Canada from Finland and Sweden about a generation ago. At least they were used to snow. And for them, the smell and the taste of cardamom was the taste of home. And really, it's the taste of Swedish cooking. Really, most of Scandinavian cooking, in fact. It's the taste of Swedish Christmas bread. It's the taste of glug, a.k.a. the Scandinavian version of mulled wine. It's the taste of taking a break from work or chores to have a bit of coffee and a sweet cookie or bun, known as the Swedish tradition of fika. But let's think about Scandinavia and cardamom for a second. How did this spice, known as the queen of spices, which loves to grow in warm, wet, semi-tropical areas, you know, places like India or Guatemala, how did this spice become the go-to ingredient for the cuisine of a region, well, forgive me, but not exactly known for its warm, temperate weather? How did this love of an Indian spice travel with Scandinavian immigrants as they crossed the Atlantic, setting up in North America, and ending up in Betty Ann's 21st century Canadian kitchen? Today, we're tracing the unlikely story of cardamom. How this spice could be equally beloved by Babylonian kings and Swedish-Canadian grandmothers. This is the feast, after all, where meals and, of course, spices, make history. I'm Laura Carlson, your host. So let's back up just a bit from Betty Ann's kitchen for a second. What is this spice? Cardamom. So it turns out cardamom, like many spices, is actually a dried fruit. Or, well, seed pod. Take your pick. Humans have been using it in food or medicine since, and you'll forgive the technical jargon here, since the beginning of time, kings of Babylon grew it in their gardens. Greeks and Romans imported it from Persia and India, using it in medicines, perfumes, and of course, food. The famous Roman cookbook writer Apicius listed cardamom as one of the essential spices that any self-respecting Roman chef would keep stocked in his or her kitchen. For example, Apicius flavored his meatballs with cardamom, but more often, it seems, the spice, at least in Roman times or even in Greek writings, was used in healing, 
digestive tonics and the like, along with other spices like cumin, mint, and pepper. Cardamom wasn't just traded westward, but eastward as well. In the 4th century, the Chinese writer Zhi Han described cardamom to his readers as resembling a reed with leaves like those of ginger. He provides a helpful description of all the things cardamom was useful for, such as clearing <clears throat> both wind and dissolving phlegm. But he seemed most interested in the fact that apparently, if you ate enough of this stuff, it would mean you could drink twice the usual quantity of wine. So the next time you're in need of a hangover recipe, try a little cardamom. Now, eventually, China relied on Thailand and Cambodia for its cardamom supply instead of India. But perhaps nowhere was there more demand for Indian-grown cardamom than the Arabian Peninsula. First controlled by the Persian, then Islamic empires, for Arabia, cardamom was queen. While Greek or Roman sources may have just referred to cardamom, Persian cookbooks and medical books not only differentiated it between green and black cardamom, major varieties still seen today, but they also had different names for the various sizes of cardamom. The spice-flavored stews, drinks, medical digestives. You could even add it to your recipe for preserved lemons. Almost any dish a Persian chef could imagine. Some kind of cardamom could easily feature in it. And this seemed to carry through over the centuries as Persian emperors transitioned to Islamic caliphs of the 10th and 11th centuries. But the cardamom-rich court of medieval Baghdad, for example, wasn't exactly next door to Stockholm. How did Scandinavia inherit this beloved spice of the Middle East? Well, here's where the story gets tricky. On one hand, you have medieval Scandinavia, areas like Sweden or Norway, perhaps even Finland, depending on who's counting. And this is an area full of, well, you know, the Vikings, who, yes, developed a very, very strong reputation for fighting, but more specifically, also had a tendency of traveling just about anywhere their boats could reach kicking off with places like England and Ireland, an easy reach across the North Sea. But soon, Vikings were finding their way south to France and across the Mediterranean to places like Italy. And here, well, here's where the story gets a little fuzzy. Because by this point, say around the 11th or 12th centuries or so, the medieval world is starting to shrink exchange or trade has picked up a bit. Folks are traveling a bit more, whether for war or pilgrimage or simply for business. Some folks were traveling west, say from Constantinople or Baghdad to Naples or Corsica. Some folks were traveling east, say from Scandinavia, for example, over to, well, Naples or Corsica. And eventually, these folks are bound to meet in the middle. This is where some scholars say the official cardamom exchange probably first took place. Traders or merchants from Baghdad, maybe Egypt, 
maybe all the way from India, were selling spices such as cinnamon, ginger, and of course cardamom. And, well, folks from the West? They were buying. Maybe they had tasted a dish full of flavors they liked, but had never tasted before. And certainly the flavors weren't available back home. Maybe they liked the idea of the luxury of these expensive spices from far, far to the East. Maybe they were interested in showing off a bit of that new Viking wealth by coming home like kings and queens, ships stocked full of decadent foreign merchandise, including a couple of unknown spices or two. Who knows? What we do know is that slowly but surely, cardamom begins to pop up in writing in Western Europe. We start to see it in cookbooks, in medical treatments, and lists of household goods, everywhere from France to England, and eventually, of course, Scandinavia. Now, that's not to say we can find pages and pages of medieval Swedish cardamom recipes. And often that's just because there aren't that many medieval cookbooks that survive, from Sweden or really anywhere. But when we do see it, it's clear that, as far as how it's used, cardamom, as well as most spices, probably went for a pretty penny. If you even had access to spices at all, you were probably doing okay as far as what rung of the old economic ladder you were standing on. Take this recipe, which was discovered in one of the few recipe books from Northern Europe that survive, probably from around the 13th century. It's for a recipe called how to prepare a sauce for the lords, and how long it lasts. Catchy! Now, I'm not saying it was cardamom that made this a lordly dish, but it probably helped. In this recipe, which calls for not only cardamom, but cloves, nutmeg, pepper, cinnamon, and ginger, you add this lovely spice mix to toasted bread, grind the whole mess up, add some vinegar, put it in a barrel, let it age. Presto, a lordly sauce perfect for your next medieval dinner party. And hey, if you are interested in such lordly sauces, we'll include the recipe on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. By now, that is the 13th and 14th centuries, other medieval writers throughout northern and western Europe have begun to list cardamom along with cinnamon and ginger as must-haves in a well-stocked kitchen, just as Apicius had done over a thousand years ago. Okay, so we've figured out that cardamom has somehow made its way to Europe during the medieval period, and it's gotten a little popular. Great. But one lordly recipe does not a fika tradition make. Let's fast forward. What happened in Scandinavia that turned this spice from an occasional and luxurious sauce ingredient, fit only for lords, to something a whole region could enjoy on a daily basis. Well, Daniel Sarah has a few theories. Daniel is a culinary archaeologist and author of An Early Meal, a Viking Age cookbook and culinary odyssey. He's been working for years, experimenting how early Scandinavians cooked and ate. And as he says, by the 16th century, Cardamom could be found in all kinds of sources, both in cookbooks and medical treatises in Scandinavia. I think this is the early 15th century, mid-15th century. Cardamom being uh, appearing in medical treatises. I think it is good for 
digestion. And the other one is saying that, and it's also saying that you should eat cardamom in October, is someone saying. And if you're going to protect yourself against cold in November, you should eat uh, cardamom as well. Then you have the later mixture of, what's a mixture of several spices. And it's against, so it's against uh, backache. So it's, it has sort of like 10 different uh, spices in it. And this, the recipe, this is, a, you should take any seeds, parsley seeds, uh, long pepper, cinnamon, cobweb, lovage, and other uh, spices. But it sort of taps into something else that was interesting at the time, about the 16th century, 15th century, in Europe, and also in Scandinavia, to some extent, people start using cardamom in spiced wine. Ah, uh, spiced wine. Or, as it's usually known today, mold wine. It's a favorite boozy beverage that's over a thousand years old. Ancient Egyptians were known to spice their wine. So were the Romans. And all over Europe throughout the medieval and even Renaissance periods, it was the perfect way to take that edge off chilly, wintry days. But glug, as it's known in Sweden, is a particular specialty. Perhaps because, well, they had the most chilly, wintry days of anyone. The name is thought to be an adaptation of the Swedish, or maybe even German term, for glowing coals. There are even some myths that suggest the dropping of these glowing hot coals into the cup was the traditional way to heat the beverage. And in Sweden, you would have Swedish king in the 16th century, Gustav Vasa, who was really into this spiced wine. King Gustav I, a.k.a. Gustav Vasa, ruled Sweden during the early 16th century and became well-known for his love of warm wine, spiced with cloves, nutmeg, and, of course, cardamom. His favorite drink became associated with Christmas feasting, a tradition which carries on in Sweden today. But we're still in the realm of drinks here. How do we get to cardamom bread, like the one Betty Ann and Emma were making in the kitchen? Today, Christmas for Swedish families isn't just a time for spiced wine, but also for sweet buns and breads, flavored, of course, with cardamom. Something that Emma's Swedish-Canadian grandmother, Betty Ann, remembers vividly about her own childhood in Northern Ontario. My earliest memories about cardamom especially, that would be the most important spice in my uh, childhood, because I would sometimes uh, wake up to my mother pounding the cardamom seeds on a board in between two layers of a tea towel to get it fine enough for her coffee bread that she was going to be making. Mostly it was made before, just before Christmas. It was really a Christmas uh, bread, but she would make it sometimes during, other times during the year, especially for my Swedish grandfather. The transition of cardamom from a sauce or mulled wine spice to flavoring things like sweet breads and buns seems to have happened right around the 18th or 19th centuries. Now, it's possible this was because right around that time, spices were getting just that much cheaper. So folks besides those medieval lords could now afford them. Not all the time, mind you, but at least for special occasions like Christmas. But that, that could be one of the reasons. People when keeping it for feast festivities, you have the cardamom for sweet breads and sweet things, and that would survive among the people who couldn't afford spices every day. And you find it in the 18th century cookbook cardamom used for 
for some food, but also quite a lot of sweets for breads and stuff. As we move into the 18th and 19th centuries in Sweden, more and more we see cardamom pop up in breads. Not just for your average Swedish home baker, but for everyone, even the royal court still. One legend about the Swedish King Adolf Fredrik, who ruled during the 18th century, was that he literally ate himself to death after consuming about a dozen sweet cardamom buns. And, well, to be fair, these buns came after a rather generous meal already of lobster, caviar, sauerkraut, kippers, topped off with champagne. So it may not have been entirely the fault of the cardamom buns. By this point, during the 18th and 19th centuries, many Swedes, Finns, and Danes were on the move, emigrating from the northern countries of Scandinavia to North America, and bringing their food traditions, including their cardamom, with them. Such was the story of Betty Ann's family, settling in northern Ontario. The historian Eleanor Barr estimates that over 100,000 Swedes emigrated to Canada beginning in the late 1700s, a number that doesn't include the number of Finns, Danes, and Norwegians who also moved to the country around the same time. Scandinavians in Canada established communities, formed businesses, set up shops, including stores that stocked the beloved cardamom. And it's perhaps around this time that we see another jump in Swedish tradition in terms of cardamom. As the spice became cheaper and cheaper, new uses could be found for it. Of course, it remained the prominent flavor of Scandinavian Christmas breads, but now the spice could also be used on a daily basis. Say, for example, a coffee break or two. Well, I remember my mother uh, pounding some of these uh, cardamom seeds and putting them, adding them to her coffee grind, grounds. And they, it wasn't a drip coffee maker in those days. Of course, it was a, an old percolator type. I remember smelling that coming out of the coffee, even though I never drank coffee. If you were a dyed and true Swede, you picked up your cup and poured a little bit in the saucer, as much as it would hold or as much as you could handle, put a lump of sugar in between your front teeth, and then bring up the saucer and sip the coffee from the saucer through the sugar lump. <laughs> I'm sure that nowadays, we would, if someone did that, we would consider it rude. <laughs> However... It never crossed my mind as a child that it was rude because that was their custom and a lot of the older Swedes did it and uh, enjoyed their coffee very much that way. Cardamom in coffee aside, the practice of having maybe a cardamom-flavored cake or bun with coffee certainly endures, both in Sweden and with Swedes living in Canada. Anna Tiverain a Swedish expat who until recently owned a Swedish-focused bakery and coffee shop in Toronto, explains a bit about the very popular concept of fika, which can mean going for coffee, but also can just mean a break or hang out with friends. I'm born in Stockholm, but I, I grew up in the south part of Sweden, in Malmö. 
it's when you get together with a friend, you might say, oh, you know what, let's go for a glass of wine or let's, let's, uh, you know, go for coffee. That's going for a fika. You could either buy some fika and take it home. And that means that you're going to go to the bakery and you're buying some sweet stuff and take it home, put the coffee on and you're having fika at home. Or you have a fika in the city somewhere, downtown or, you know, anywhere, or you have fika at work. And that is around 10 o'clock in the morning, usually, and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So it's not breakfast or lunch, or it's not lunch or dinner. You know, it's something in between. So it is that little meal that we take in the morning or afternoon, just to kind of sit down and relax a little bit. You don't do it running around. You don't have a fika on the go kind of thing. You You do sit down. It's accounted for. It's not something that people do once a month or something. Like they might not buy fresh bread or fresh pastries for every fika every day. But once a week, every workplace probably have something special for fika, you know, on a Friday or, you know, like in in Canada, pretty much the same thing. But we call it the different thing in it here. And it's also it's a great way to capitalize on traditions. Of course, at her bakery and coffee shop, Anna was an expert in the art of fika, but also necessarily in the art of coffee cardamom bread, which today is loved by not only Swedes, but Finns, and probably the rest of Scandinavia as well. Today, the cardamom-flavored bread is often known as vetebrot, which literally just means wheat bread in Swedish, but usually refers to a special sweet braided bread eaten during Christmas. In Finland, there are similar recipes, known as pula. Emma and Betty Ann's family may still make it at home, but at Anna's bakery, at least, lines would form to pre-order her special version. I would have people... I used to have a Finnish baker at the cafe for a few years, and the Finns would come in rows. Like There were so many Finnish people coming because this girl that was baking for me was so good and well-known in the Finnish community. And they would order, you know, six loaves and eight loaves. And, they would, and I would have people come from Kingston to, and order them and come and get, oh, yeah, no, not, not unusual at all, like from uh, Brampton, Burlington, you know, or... or Thunder Bay, like people, we sent them to Calgary, you know, whatever. For Anna, Betty Ann, and Emma, cardamom is the smell of home, of Christmas, and of family. Which, to me, is one of the many unexpected twists in the great big history that is food. Take a seed pod from Southeast Asia. Add a thousand years or so. And all of a sudden, you have a flavor that is a staple of both the curries of India and the holiday sweetbreads of Swedish Canadians. Cardamom was a very, I don't know, it was almost like it was a comforting smell or something. It's, uh, you know, it's a very unique, I think, uh, spice. You know, it's not strong like a cinnamon or a cloves smell, but the cardamom just... It, I just found it a comforting smell. And, and when the coffee bread was baking in the oven, you know, the same thing. It wasn't just like ordinary yeast bread yeah. coming out of the oven. It was special because of the cardamom smell. Yeah. 
No, I I completely agree. That's my favorite part of Christmas time is making coffee bread with you because it just smells like traditions and family. And yes, yeah, yeah, that's my favorite part as well. If all this talk of sweetbread has made you a little hungry, and who can blame you? You can find a recipe for a Swedish cardamom bread on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. For now, let's head back to that kitchen with Emma and Betty Ann, who are still making their Christmas bread the old-fashioned way, taking the seed pods, placing them between two kitchen towels, and hammering away to get out all the little cardamom seeds that will flavor their bread. coming yeah yes now it's almost a very almost fine done. powder yep. there's a couple almost, yeah couple chunks you'd want to yep but that's not how much cardamom would you say would you say that would be enough for a loaf or a, a batch of loaves i guess no 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 i would think no. you would need quite a bit more yeah about three times so that's probably a teaspoon and you probably need, need about three teaspoons or so at least yeah, yeah. Yeah. The more cardamom, the better is yeah. generally how I see it. Yes. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with associate production this week by Emma Allen. Mixing by Mike Port. A huge thank you to not only Emma, but also her grandmother, Betty Ann Duncan, who was willing to be interviewed for this episode. As well, of course, to the former owner of Toronto's Beaches, Bakery, and Cafe, Swedish Anna Tavram. Thanks as well to culinary archaeologist Daniel Sarah. If you're enjoying the feast, please don't forget to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. We'll put up all the recipes and links to cardamom bread, coffee, and mulled wine on our website, thefeastpodcast.org. You can also find all our kitchen cardamom experiments on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at feast underscore podcast. That's all for us this week. We'll be back next week with more meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.